Welcome to Law X.0, a Bloomberg Law podcast dedicated to seeing around corners and preparing you for the next version of the legal industry. Artificial intelligence has changed the way we shop, the way we date, and it's changing the way we practice law. But much of the legal industry has been reluctant to change. There might be obvious benefits, but as lawyers, we focus on the risks, problems, and ethical concerns. And we are skeptical about the impact all of this will have on our jobs. I'm Dory Goldstein. And I'm Eleanor Tyler. And today we're talking about that problem, how to balance the big risks of AI with the big benefits. How do we use it to help clients without letting it take over? So we need our robot overlords, but don't want to put them on the partner track? We really don't. But we think that this issue, this intersection of artificial intelligence and the practice of law is going to be big in 2020. That's why we're highlighting it as the final episode in our series covering the Bloomberg Law 2020 project. The project previews the themes and topics that the Bloomberg Law analysis team will be watching closely in the coming year. Here to discuss legal AI is Dan Linna. Dan has a joint appointment at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law and McCormick School of Engineering. He's the Director of Law and Technology Initiatives and a senior lecturer. Dan's teaching and research focus on innovation and technology, including artificial intelligence. He is also an affiliated faculty member at Codex, the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics. Welcome, Dan. Glad to join you. I've heard you quote Bill Gates before, that we overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that will occur in the next 10. So with all of that in mind, what should we expect in the next two? Yeah, I think that it's difficult maybe to predict the future where things are really going to go long term. It's a little bit easier maybe to predict the short term that the, to the two-year process. I do think that that um, we, we focus sometimes too much on just the technology and not on the other, the other things that are driving innovation and change. And, and I like to talk about this in terms of people, process, data, technology. If we just look at the way we've always done things as lawyers and throw technology at it, then there's maybe a limited set of areas where we can really make the most of technology. But especially when we start thinking about this, this kind of like, 10-year time horizon and we start thinking about how we should how we could potentially transform the things we're doing right there's there are these opportunities to to envision the future and then work towards creating it and but that starts with not just the technology but thinking about well what are the processes how do how do we actually do things and generate value for clients for society generally so thinking bigger picture where do we want to go and how do we produce that value E-discovery is a pretty, um, it's a pretty mature process right now. We've got a good decade behind us in that, you know, in the technologies that we use and in the processes that we've adopted to understand the flood of digital information and litigation. With that as a, as a framework, can you walk me through what you think the next 10 years will look like? What do you think is our next jump? Well, we're already seeing some of that play out, and we can say if we're using uh, using tools, technology, system review to decide what's relevant or not relevant 
in a litigation matter, can we use those tools for diligence? And we're seeing more and more tools in that space. Can we use those tools to review contracts, uh, to use natural language generation tools for litigation and drafting contracts, things like that? And I, and I think those are really important developments and kind of somewhat the logical extension of the things that we have right now. But, I, but to kind of go back to what I was saying just a minute ago, I think we're at a really unique point in time when we're deciding, we're, we're seeing the digitization of almost everything around us. And so kind of asking big questions like, what does digital governance look like? What do our legal systems look like? What do our legal institutions look like in a digital society? And, and starting to set bigger goals for, our, for the legal industry. I mean, why can't we have a world where 100% of people have access to the law? If you have a smartphone in your pocket, you can pull it out and you know what your rights are, you know what your responsibilities are, you can get basic legal information, you can get basic legal services. Uh, why don't we re-envision the way court systems work, right? Why don't we re-envision the way we create law itself so that we can expand rule of law and, and um, access to law across the planet to everyone, right? So I think that that so to some extent right now, a lot of what we're doing with technology is kind of like figuring out how to speed up or do some of the things we've always done a little bit better. And I'd like to see more and more of, of shifting to thinking about the transformation of law, legal systems, legal institutions. What do we want the world to look like in 10, 20, 50 years? And how, what are the obstacles of getting there? How do we start overcoming those obstacles to make these things happen? So that sounds really appealing. I love the idea of access to the law for more people. But right now, I feel like there's a lot of skepticism in the legal industry about AI. Uh, a bunch of studies have said that adoption is somewhere around 25%. That's pretty low considering all of the applications. Do you think that they're right to be skeptical? And how do we get over this? Well, I think it's. I think that there's there's sometimes too much blaming of attorneys for not wanting to innovate and adopt these tools. I think many attorneys um, want to do the right things to better serve their clients and better serve society. I think asking the question, asking lawyers, are you using AI is, is the wrong question. I mean, we, we've got to get away from this focus on tools and we got to talk about what are the problems. I mean, the bottom line is that almost every attorney is using AI in one form or another because it's in legal research. Right. It's in, it's in, you know I mean, it's out there and, but, Pretty hard to I mean, avoid, actually. We, right, right, right. And and so getting focused on, um, you know, we, it's interesting because innovators talk a lot about empathy, but then sometimes I don't think we think about, well, wait, how do we have empathy for the lawyers who are skeptics about these things? Why don't we understand better where they're coming from and what they need and how they can better serve their clients and, and what their vision is for how lawyers serve society? So there's, I think there's a lot of learning that needs to go on to, to and, and those of us who are proponents of these tools, we have to do a better job of describing them and what are the benefits to lawyers, legal systems, other legal professionals and society generally. And I also think another part of this is coming up with um, fostering a quality movement is to really get us focused on, on improving quality and creating cultures that empower people to for continuous improvement but also then standard metrics for quality and value. So we can figure out how to actually measure the impact of, of some of these tools, whether they're being used to improve access to legal services or improve um, services for the largest corporate clients. So there's, there's a lot of work to do in those areas. 
Well, there certainly is always a problem with having to do more with less in legal services for certain. And so anytime that you can get past that initial scarcity and work on the quality problem, then you've taken a big step forward. Um, Speaking of quality, (laughs) lawyers are particularly concerned about their ethical obligations under the rules. They need to understand and vet technology that they're using for their client work. The ABA this year has called for courts and lawyers to address emerging ethical issues with AI. What do you think lawyers who are using AI need to be concerned about ethically? Well, I think there's a, a variety of things that are kind of some of the things we typically think about. Uh, competence, and we see more and more of a discussion about lawyers need to be competent in understanding these technologies. I, I really think that we need to push lawyers to have a functional understanding of the technologies. I think that's more and more important if we want to think about how to use the technologies in legal services delivery, but then also we, more and more of our clients, they have uh, AI as a part of the things that they do as well. And so having a functional understanding of what the, the technology is understanding when we delegate work, whether that's to an outside vendor or within our firm, understanding what our obligations are as lawyers. And then things like confidentiality is always going to be important, whether that means if the data is being stored in the cloud or with another provider or who has access to it or how we might use data in a way to inform algorithms in a way that respects the confidentiality obligation to clients. Uh, Another thing that I think is becoming more and more important is in connection with this competence duty is also thinking of what it means to charge a reasonable fee. And I think most people who understand e-discovery, for example, would say that there are areas, um, it's becoming more and more the norm that you use electronic discovery and you would not charge the client for a team of attorneys to review contracts. And I think we're going to see more and more areas where the lawyer has an affirmative duty to, to have a discussion with the client, inform the client, and use technology. And if the lawyer is not doing that, what the lawyer would charge to the client is then no longer a reasonable fee under the rule. How big of a problem is algorithmic bias in legal applications of AI? Well, this is a huge topic, and, and bias generally uh, is, is a problem everywhere that we're seeing. And I mean, the, the, the first place that people would point to probably in legal applications is, is to think in, in court systems where, for example, you might be using data to predict uh, recidivism, the likelihood of committing a future crime. And so, you know, one of the things that I'd like to do is, is turn these analyses on their head a little bit. And sometimes we have, we expect algorithms and data to be perfect. We hold the, 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 the systems to a higher standard than we do humans. And I'd like us to really understand the status quo and understand, for example, you look at court systems, we have bias, we have discrimination, we don't have everything we want in a criminal justice system. And so how can we be using data and algorithms to improve upon the status quo? So we have to, people, again, I think this is another reason why you need a functional understanding because the truth is some of these failures of technology Sometimes we're pointing to the technology, but it's, it's, it's usages by people that have no basis in sound uh, data science methods, for example, or you have individuals who are really trying to achieve some other end. They're not using the technology in good faith. And so, I mean, it, it really starts with, I think, understanding in this comparison, making sure we, we really understand the status quo, but then understanding how algorithms can... Um, accentuate the bias that might already be in the system. They can add new forms of bias, and there are definitely problems there. But this kind of goes back to the idea of reimagining what things could look like. How do we make sure that we use 
these tools so that we can get a better criminal justice system, for example. And the last thing I'll mention on this is I think there still is a lot of work, too, to think about the ways in which bias could enter into other legal applications, legal aid applications, things like that. And that's part of this whole process of testing and um, evaluating these tools and, and making sure we're asking, asking a lot of questions and continuing to monitor and update our understanding of how these tools work. So let's talk about a little bit about how we regulate AI. Um, as I understand it, um, please tell me if I'm wrong, currently it's more or less unregulated. There isn't exactly a U.S. regulatory authority that we send our data and algorithms to for a checkmark. Are we currently in a landscape where the U.S. is only regulating the outputs of AI as opposed to how algorithms are built on the front end? Yeah, I'd say that that's essentially right. There, there has well, for and first of all, I should say, of course, there there is some law that is on the books that applies, and and some people might first point to the GDPR, the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, you know, if you think about there, there is other law that that ends up playing a role in these spaces. But as far as law that's focused directly on artificial intelligence or, or algorithms. The, um, yeah, there, there is a gap. And um, so, for example, something that was introduced in Congress uh, recently with about a year ago, the Algorithmic Accountability Act, it hasn't gone anywhere, but that is an example of the kind of law that has been proposed that would uh, give the Federal Trade Commission some authority to think about requiring certain assessments of AI in, in particular types of organizations. Um, but, you know, again, it hasn't gone anywhere. We're seeing more and more discussion about the role of soft law in this space. So quite a few organizations like the IEEE or the OECD has come up with standards around thinking about, uh, like there's a whole conference that's going on right now in, in, in uh, Barcelona, for example, around fair, um, accountable and transparent algorithms. And, and so people have these different principles that they're coming up with. And that is uh, an area where there is a role for these organizations and, and for us to come up with kind of standards on, on how should we be going about to create these tools so they, they benefit people, so they're transparent, so we understand them. And of course, in some ways, those can get incorporated into our existing law. Like you think about negligence standards, for example, if you have, um, you're going to determine some, whether someone was negligence or not, if you have standards that have developed that that are otherwise adhered to in an industry that can play a role in that analysis. Do you think it's likely we'll get anything uh, in the U.S. at the federal level anytime soon? Well, federal level will be interesting. And, and, and the, the, the Trump administration, there was an executive order that came out early this year. And then there was some more recent releases. And of course, one of the balancing acts here is to figure out how you might regulate in a way that you get the things you want, um, fairness, accountability, safety, but you don't, uh, you don't, you know, put the brakes on innovation. And so it's a delicate balancing act. But you've there's been more and more calls for legislation in this space. States are doing things, other jurisdictions. I mean, one worry I have is I've seen some jurisdictions, for example, ban facial recognition technology. And I worry that we're not thinking about the potential beneficial uses of these technologies. And I mean, I think we just have to have a broader discussion about this. And, and the, I mean, we're a little bit behind on some of these things. And I think that that puts us in a, in a, in a challenging spot because I think I worry about the harm of, ban of banning different technologies. And what, what does that really mean? And how might that 
prohibit us from really expanding on beneficial uses of, of technologies. And, and you know, I, I really have my doubts that that's the right approach. Uh, so I think we're going to have to figure out some ways to, to fill the gaps. And there's a huge need for broader conversation about these questions um, across society generally. We really need everyone contributing to thinking about this and understanding these tools and the ways that um, they can help us to, to transform society. So that functional understanding that lawyers need to have, how should legal education train up young lawyers on using AI? One of the things that I think is is most important is just thinking about how we can really improve interdisciplinary education. And that is one of the reasons why I was so excited to have the opportunity to join Northwestern, because there was a tradition here of interdisciplinary education across the campus. The law school for a long time has been doing things uh, with the business school and other units, and then more recently has been doing a lot with the computer science group. And so I was really excited to land here, and we've got faculty and students in computer science and in engineering and robotics that are just really excited about learning about law in this space and, and working with lawyers to think about how to handle some of these challenges. And so we at Northwestern in the law school, we're teaching classes like AI and, and legal reasoning. Uh, we have an innovation lab where we have computer science students with our law students and master of science and law students. Uh, we have classes like law of AI and robotics uh, and assessing AI class. Uh, so I think kind of these interdisciplinary endeavors. I did something like this recently out at Stanford as well, where we had law students, computer science students, and business school students all working together and thinking about how does, what does this look like in the real world? Uh, how do we, if we are in a startup or if we are at a company, we're part of a, of a team developing products, systems, platforms, instead of just thinking about these things in the back end, how do we think about um, you know, making it part of the innovation process by design and default for us to think about respecting human rights, respecting law, uh, having sound ethical principles built into our processes all by design and default. And so, I mean, that's one model. That's one thing we're trying to do here at Northwestern. I've been involved at a few other law schools as well. But I, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot for us to learn by engaging with our colleagues in, in other disciplines. So what about those people who have already graduated and are out in the world? How can they educate themselves about AI? Well, there are more people, more and more people offering uh, continuing legal education programs. Uh, here in Chicago, there's a program called The Future Is Now. Uh, we do some conferences at Northwestern. There's things like ILTA and Legal Week. And so those are some ways to go to programming. The other thing is, is we've never been at a more exciting time as far as being able to get information, to get knowledge, to get high quality content. And so some of the MOOCs, these massive online open courses, right. have, if any, anyone wants to learn about AI, for example, go to Coursera, look at Andrew Ng's course, AI for Everyone, amazing course to get a functional understanding of artificial intelligence. Um, or edX has, has a program called CS50, even one that's CS50 for lawyers. And then there's, there's like legal hackers meetings, legal tech meetups. And here at Northwestern with our law and technology initiative, we're doing monthly meetings. We did, we did a training seminar around artificial intelligence last month in, in December. Chris Hammond, who's one of our, our leading CS professors, delivered that training on AI for, for uh, lawyers and, and other legal professionals. And we're doing symposia and conferences and a growing number of law schools and other organizations are, are doing things as well. So there's a, uh, you know, it's, it's really exciting. There are more and more people getting, doing programming and trying to bring together experts to, to educate each other on these things and talk about how do we work together to collaborate to 
take on some of the challenges and, and kind of create this brighter future that, 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 uh, that we can have. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. If listeners want to follow more of your work, where can they find you? Well, I would encourage anyone interested in this area to, to get on Twitter. There's a great conversation. I'm there, Dan Lina, so at Dan Lina. Uh, and then it's easy to find me in the Northwestern website if you just Google my name and you can send me an email if you'd prefer to go the more traditional route. Fantastic. Thank you again. That was Dan Lina talking about artificial intelligence in the law. I feel so optimistic after that. I do too. I think uh, AI could mean a lot of good things for the legal industry. And access to legal services. If you want to read the rest of our predictions for 2020, visit pro.bloomberglaw.com slash Bloomberg dash law dash 2020. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dory underscore Goldstein. That's D-O-R-I underscore G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. And I am at Eleanor S. Tyler. That's E-L-E-A-N-O-R underscore S underscore T-Y-L-E-R. You've been listening to Law X.0 from Bloomberg Law. For more Bloomberg Law analysis, visit news.bloomberglaw.com slash Bloomberg dash law dash analysis. Find us wherever you download your podcasts. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Those aren't the only down ballot races we're watching, are they? In states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Will Democrats be able to defend their majority in the House this year? Will Republicans keep their majority in the Senate? Are there other members who wish to record their presence? Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down-ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. 26, and that is the number of women who will be serving the United States Senate when it swears in Georgia Republican Kelly Leffler. Along the way, we'll cover all of the numbers that matter. So a really interesting thing is how much national security background and experience so many of them are bringing to this job and interview key players in the congressional elections. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.